Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. This week I'm going to tell you probably one of the most well-known UK true crime cases there is. It's been recommended to us by a few people since we started uh, three years ago and it has taken me this long to actually finally do it. (laughs) Three years of research. Yes. (laughs) So this is the story of James Bulger. Before I start, I would just like to say this is about a child being murdered by other children, so listeners' discretion is advised. Please do skip it if this is not something you would like to know about. We have done a lot of these as well, so apologies for doing a lot of children crimes, especially children committing crimes against other children. Maybe we should do something else for a bit. Yeah, we maybe need to change the theme. Maybe I'll go back to stranglers or something. I don't know. Oh, we enjoyed your strangler phase. Yeah, yeah, but I guess it's better than the children face. So, right, but do bear with us because this is this is an important one. Um, and also, Caitlin, I'm not going to ask you because, of course, you'll have heard of this. James Patrick Bulger was born on the 16th of March, 1990. He lived in Liverpool and Merseyside in England with his mother, Denise Bulger, who is now Denise Fergus, and I'm unsure whether he lived with his father, Ralph Bulger, at the time. He was a lovely wee boy who was very friendly. He was social, cheeky, just a typical toddler, I'd say. On the 12th of February, 1993, Denise, James and Denise's friend went to the Strand Indoor Shopping Centre where they walked around for a while, did a bit of shopping and then Denise and James headed to the butchers at around 3.40pm. Denise let go of James's hand for a matter of less than a minute to sort the money, you know, pay the butcher, get the change, put it back in her purse, something that we've all done before and we know it doesn't take long. When Denise looked back down to take James's hand back, though, James had gone. Denise immediately started to panic and she looks around the inside of the shop, the outside of the shop, just frantically trying to find her two-year-old son. It must just be, like, the most horrific feeling. Like, I've been there as a child (laughs) who's, like, lost where their mum is, or even when I'm out with, like, you, and we're in the same shop, and I turn around, I'm like, where is she? And it's, like, a horrible minute of, like, for God's sake, so as a mum... With, like, the person you're responsible for not being there. That must be the worst feeling in the world. Yeah, like, your heart must just be going, like, 100 miles an hour. Now, the shopping centre, they put out a routine call for James and for people to report any sightings to bring him to the front desk. This wasn't an uncommon thing because I feel it happened a lot growing up. Maybe not so much nowadays, but or maybe I just don't listen now, but big shops are at least shopping centres as oh, well. Oh, it was definitely a huge thing when we were younger. Yeah, like I remember people would on like reception desks and stuff and they'd be like, could citizens actually return to this or next or whatever? Yeah, no, absolutely. And these were going about all the time because, you know, it wasn't because children had either got taken away and things. It's just people wander off like the child could wander to the toy shop or the sweetie aisle, you know, or just any equivalent sort of shop. Now, this announcement fed back nothing, though, and no one came to the desk to say that they had seen James and no one brought him back in. As well as that, the physical search from Denise and all the staff also came back with nothing. And so the police were called. At this time, it hadn't fully entered people's minds that he had been taken by anybody. It was more so that they were concerned for his safety and where he was. This is a busy shopping centre. There's cars around and there was a busy road nearby. 
As time went by, the search extended beyond the shopping centre and people started to search the streets nearby as well and also nearby canals because, you know, he could have fallen in. It was quite a vast industrial area to search. The next morning, it had been almost 24 hours since anyone had last seen James and Denise and her family had been at the police station the whole time. That morning was when police finally got their first lead as the shopping centre had looked over their CCTV footage and they found a clip of a toddler leaving the premises with two young boys where they Again, I get it was the... Sorry. I get that it was the 90s, but I feel like that should have been done the day before. Yeah, it took a while. There was a lot of searching and a lot of everything, but yeah, you'd think it would have happened sooner. Yeah, I feel like now that would be the first thing to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But now, you know, I guess hindsight's a wonderful thing. But, you know, they assessed the boys' ages to be about 14 or 15. However, this wasn't completely clear because the CCTV footage wasn't exactly great. It wasn't in great visibility and it wasn't clear. It was no doubt in black and white. And even with the footage being pretty poor, Denise could still identify James due to the outfit that he was wearing that day. So this is a positive lead, even if the image is awful. Initially, though, this knowledge comforted Denise and also some of the family because knowing that he'd gone off with two young boys as the chances of getting him back seemed pretty high because their intentions were probably not malicious, as why would they be? It's two younger kids compared to, say, you know, if you saw him out with an older gentleman, then let's be realistic, alarm bells would probably be ringing straight away. Even with this knowledge, though, they still hadn't got James back and they didn't 100% know if they were possibly all playing a game or had harm come to him or had harm even come to all of them. And so Denise took to the news to give a public appeal to try and get whoever had James to bring him back. Despite this, though, and despite the CCTV images being made public, sadly, nothing really came back. So the police and public know that they're two boys. And the main thing now was to look for them both in the hopes that this will then locate James. The age range to look out for with regards to the two boys was set from 10 to 18. However, the police concentrated more or less looking at boys about 14 years old and local police were contacted to see if they had any young children on file that had been in trouble before that might fit the description of these two boys on the CCTV footage. It was unfortunately an area where a lot of children were always in trouble, but despite all the appeals and the whole of Liverpool searching for James, nothing came up. However, sadly, just two days after James had went missing, his mum received the worst news she could ever get. Two-year-old James Bulger's mutilated body was found on a railway line. James had actually been found by two children who were playing, not by adults. One of the boys was just 14-year-old, sorry, 14 years old, and his name was James Riley, who actually ended up this year, so 2023 in March, at the age of 44, dying in police custody. Now, side note, James James had been in and out of prison his whole life, having been convicted over 40 times for a range of offences. With this, his family have said, though, it was partly or mostly a result of the trauma caused by the discovery. Yeah. No wonder. Sorry, I'm getting really passionate. I feel like if you discovered a body, especially a child's body, at that mm-hmm. age that's going to fuck you up for life but also how did you die in police custody 
I do not know how he died in custody. I am sorry, I didn't look into the full thing. Well, there wasn't much information on it. It was just saying he's died in police custody. My guess is it may have been just a heart attack or maybe an addiction of some sort got him at the at the end of it. But I'll definitely look into it. Um, and also, with you say finding James's body, now we'll know later on. But I mean, this wasn't just a casual dead body. It was the dead body of a two-year-old, for one. But secondly, it was in a state. And he was just 14 years old at the time. So, not great. Now, this missing person investigation turns into a manhunt to find the two young boys that were now possible murder suspects. As always, the press quickly gets involved. In the eyes of the world, who were a Liverpool magazine, their editors actually offered their services to police to try and clear up these images of the CCTV footage to see if they could make it clearer to help the investigation. As Liverpool always does, they all come together to try and solve this investigation and help in any way they could. At Good this luck point, for Liverpool. Absolutely. Now, at this point, people were still looking at an age range of 14 to 18. And those that were young offenders or those that were a bit of a troublemaker. One of the boys that they actually questioned as a suspect in the end had to leave Liverpool as he and his family were getting so many threats from folk that knew he had been questioned for the murder. So presumed he was guilty of this awful crime. Turns out, though, he was very much innocent and yet still had to leave the area due to all these threats. Now I feel this is not big when, up Liverpool. Well, I feel this is as as public. We kind of take it too far. I understand. I think that's know. always the case. So, like, if you go back to the Jill Dando episode, like that guy that was found guilty of a murder and was then acquitted, there was still remember no evidence. It was just because he was interviewed once, and everyone was like, "Yep, that's it." And it's like there's literally no evidence against this guy, but the public are still like, "Nope, that's it." Yeah, we as public need to remember that you're innocent until proven otherwise, which is a difficult one to muster, I must say, in some situations anyway. Um, Now, the police released details of James's last steps from where he was abducted to where he was found, which is just over two miles. That's a fair long walk with a toddler, so surely someone saw something as where he was found as well, they'd have had to have, you know, climbed up the side of a railway bridge. After a few days, a woman anonymously contacted police saying that she'd seen the released CCTV footage on the news and she actually recognised one of the boys as someone's son that she knew. She said that this boy had actually skipped school that day with his friend, which they do on the regular, and so this is an immediate lead for officers to follow up on. Ten-year-old John Venables and Robert Thompson were the two boys that the police went to follow up with. At first, it was more of a routine because these were two 10-year-olds, right? They surely thought that this isn't going to be right, is it? However, best to check and question and then we can rule them out. When the police turned up to John's house, who was a boy that the woman recognised from the CCTV footage, and a separate team of officers went to speak to Robert Thompson, who was his friend. When officers arrived at John's house and when he was called down the stairs, they couldn't believe just how young he actually looked. He looked more like an eight-year-old than a ten-year-old, and they were really taken aback. John's mum mentioned to the police that he had truanted from school and said to John that was why they were here. His mum also handed them his coat, which had blue paint on the sleeve and also a small child's handprint from um, from paint on the jacket. 
John was arrested and taken in for questioning. Again, when police went to question Robert, they couldn't believe that such a young boy could be involved in all of this. When at the house, police noticed blood on one of his trainers and he too was arrested and taken in for questioning. So here's a little bit of a background on them both. So John Thompson, uh, Robert Thompson and John Benables. So Robert Thompson was one of seven children, all of whom were boys. So it was a huge family. His dad was also called Robert and he used to beat his mother and eventually he went on to have an affair with a lady he met whilst on a family holiday with everyone. He made no attempt at hiding his affair from the family either. He even said to his wife that she had a, if she had a problem with it or complained, then he'd just leave her and the kids. Not that he spoke to them much anyways. All in all, not a great man, in my opinion. Robert's dad spent most of his time either at the pub or with the other women. He did eventually leave to go live with um, his life with the other lady, and he left all seven children behind. But he did leave a fiver to contribute to their upbringing. So, you know, not all bad. Love now, that. Yep, it's not even a pound per child. Now, Robert never saw his dad again, apart from at his grand's funeral when he was just six years old. His dad turned up but didn't speak to any of his kids. With all this going on, Robert's mum, Anne, hit the bottle pretty hard and she became an alcoholic, relying on the drink to get her through. All seven kids were pretty much left to fend for themselves and their emotional and physical needs just weren't being met, as well as the fact they were all a mixture of ages and so the older ones would pick on the younger ones and so on. Also, just seven weeks after their father left them, all of the Thompson family were out for the day and when they returned home, they found that the house had burnt down and so all eight of them had to spend two months in a hostel. After the two months were over, the Thompsons were rehoused into a tiny little terrace house for all eight of them, which just was not big enough for them all. Anne's drinking got a lot worse and she started keeping a bottle of alcohol under her pillow so she could drink it last thing at night and first thing in the morning. All the kids are not getting enough attention, as you would expect, because one parent's left them, wants nothing to do with them, and the other one's sadly battling her own battles with alcohol. So there's just not getting enough attention that children need, and so they all start acting up. Well, acting up more. They all started getting into trouble constantly at school, and in general, so like just causing trouble and social workers were getting called to constantly come into the house but nothing was changing like I briefly said earlier the boys started bullying each other now they would all skip school sometimes but just because they wanted to, sorry wanted to and sometimes because the older brothers would threaten the younger ones saying that they would beat them up if they did go to school in one term alone, Robert missed 49 out of a possible 140 days in school and because he was missing so much work he was getting behind and he wasn't on the same level as the rest of his classmates. Mm -hmm. Now this ended up being held back a year in school. When Robert would miss school, he would often go out and shoplift sometimes, stealing things for his little brothers and for his mum to try and help the family out. Because to be honest, they were quite poor. She's a single mum looking after seven boys. They didn't have much. And Robert would also sometimes steal toys for himself because, again, he didn't have much. As I said, the older brothers would abuse the younger brothers and they often tied them up and locked them in the pigeon shed outside. One time, one of the older brothers even pulled a knife on one of the others on one occasion during an argument and the mum actually hit one of the children. And so Robert called the social services and asked for them to take him away. 
This actually happened and social services came and they took two of the boys away, both of which later in life attempted suicide in 1993. So, not great. One time, one of Robert's younger brothers was found wandering alone around the Strand, which is the same shopping centre when where James Bulger was abducted from. He was scared and was crying. And when someone asked him what had happened, he said that his older brother, Robert, and his friend, not John, a different friend, had taken him to the Strand Shopping Centre, kicked him and left him there and gone home. Now, that's a brief sum up of Robert's childhood and home life. Like, I am in no way making him a victim here. I'm just stating facts and giving you more of a background of where he's come from. Now, a bit about John Venables. John was one of three siblings. He had a younger sister and an older brother, both of which had learning disabilities. John himself didn't have any disabilities, but he would adapt some of the, or adopt, sorry, some of the behaviours that his brother and sister were showing onto himself, possibly for some more attention. His father, Neil, believed in very traditional family roles. He believed it was up to him to go out and get a job and money for the family. Meanwhile, his wife, Susan, John's mother, should be at home looking after the children. This obviously was a lot of work for Susan. She had three children, two of which had additional needs due to their disabilities. And it was just a lot of work for her. Because of this, it meant that she would often spend a lot of time with John's brother and sister because they required extra care than John. And although she maintains that she looked after them all, cared for them all and loved them all equally. However, I guess it would have been pretty hard to do and no doubt in John's eyes as a child, yeah. he didn't see it that way. There's a huge thing of siblings with siblings that have additional support needs. And I think as much as they could be loved the same and treated the same in the parents' eyes because that other child needs the additional support, there's always going to be that difference. Yeah, exactly. And that is what John felt. Now, when John was one year old, his mother Susan's his mother, Susan's father died and her mother needed extra care because her husband was no longer there and so Susan took all three kids and moved in with her mother to help. John's father Neil got his own place I don't know why he didn't move in with the rest of them but they claimed to have still been together just living in separate houses. They eventually moved into a new house but John was pretty badly bullied by the children in the neighbourhood. They used to shout at him, throw things at him and they made fun of him for his siblings being different to them all. This led John to misbehave and he was distressed by all of the bullying and so he used to cry a lot. His schoolwork suffered due to this as he would sit in class rocking backwards and forwards, mumbling and making noises. He would also throw things off the desk and bang his head really hard against the desk like enough to cause pain. Obviously this was disrupting the rest of the kids in the class and their learning like like it would, because I remember having a few kids with off-the-wall behaviour in primary, and you would definitely stop the lesson and get distracted very easily, yeah. especially when things kicked off, because you were like, ooh, the drama, what's happening? You know what I mean? Um, so this was really affecting John's classwork, and so his mother was called in, and Susan told the school that she was having the exact same problems with John at home. He would be abusive to her and he expressed multiple times that he didn't want to be at his school. He wanted to be with his brother and sister at their school. Now, it's been theorised that him acting out, hitting his head on the table, rocking backwards and forwards, was him imitating his brother and sister's behaviour to try and trick people around him into thinking that he also had learning disabilities or needing additional support to try and get into their school 
for people that needed that extra care. It's also been theorised that he wanted to move into that school in the first place because he thought that bullying just didn't exist in that school. Now, I guess it would have been a lot more tolerated as there were so many different people with different needs. However, I doubt that bullying didn't exist. He just thought that he, he moved to that school with his brown sister. He just wouldn't be bullied anymore. Now, John's behaviour only got worse. He started pulling displays off the wall. He would hide under the tables where no one could reach him. He would harm himself with scissors in class. And he eventually got banned from going on school trips because he was just so much of a disruption. One day, John even tried to strangle another student with a ruler. And it actually took two teachers to get him off of this other boy. And because of this incident, John was suspended from school for two days. Although as a form of punishment, though, his mother kept him away from school for 10 weeks. At this point, he missed so much school and he was such a disruption when he was actually at the school. He just had to move. When he did move schools, they put him back a year, putting him in to Robert Thompson's class. Robert and John got talking while they were in class, as I guess with them both being older, it was probably a magnet that pulled them both together to be friends. John did try to stay away from Robert at first because he said that he was trouble, but eventually they became best friends. Robert's bad behaviour of skiving school and stealing and things started to rub off onto John. They both had quite a lot in common. Both of their mothers had attempted suicide. Both of them didn't really have a father figure. Both of them were bullied. Both had been held back a year in school. So really, you couldn't blame them for becoming fast friends. Now, that's us all caught up on the backgrounds of both boys. Again, I am not saying either of them are victims. This is just for information. So when they were both arrested, they were taken to separate police stations for questioning. Robert Thompson, in his first question, told police that it was John Venables who practically did the whole thing. It was John who was the one that grabbed James to take him. It was his idea. Robert also starts getting very emotional, saying that he was begging John to take the baby back. You can listen to these interviews online, by the way. However, I will warn you, it's quite hard, in my opinion, because seeing and hearing their voices, it really hits you of the fact that they are so, so young. Their voices... Yeah, I was going to also... say... Sorry, Rio. No, as you can say, their voices and their reactions are very much those of young children, but the yes. same question for murder. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where I struggle as well because obviously we are all aware they're not the victims, but then you mm -hmm. listen to it and you're like, oh, this is a big criminal, like, and you listen to people in the police interviews and all this stuff, and then it is two kids. And even yeah. the way the police are having to speak to them is because they are kids and they are kids that then, I don't want to spoil it because you're probably going to say what they then said in the interviews, but they go on to say some pretty mental stuff to be coming out of the 10 year old's mouth. No, you could tell us because I probably haven't put that in. <laughs> if you want <laughs> well the fact they like admit to it yeah the fact they kind of go on to say what's happened and the fact even though they're blaming each other well they're like you know that they're blaming the other the fact that even saying for what they witnessed and what they saw as kids is terrifying but the fact that like they then went like say that that's what they did that's mental I think you watch programs like I always watch like a Twitter for our police custody and stuff like that. And like these people that have gone on to like murder or whatever, they'll be like, no comment, no comment, because they know how incrimin incriminating it is to speak. However, that I think as well shows like how young they are because they just keep talking because they obviously don't have any kind of clue what trouble they're going to be in. Yeah, you're completely right. And that's what, like, if anybody wants to listen to it, you can get it on all social medias, like YouTube, etc. I mean, online. And there's also shows probably on BBC iPlayer, etc, etc. Now, other than Robert blamed John in his interviews, 
he was very hard to question. The police found it hard to get anything out of him as he would often lie and he wouldn't tell the police the full story. It was all kind of stop and start. He would say things such as he wasn't there or that he left them both at this point. And then the police would be like, but you were seen on the reservoir talking to an old woman. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, but after that, we just left him. But then it would be the same thing, you know? But you were seen here and, and here and here. And each time he'd be like, yeah, yeah, we left him after that. Meanwhile, in John's interview, which was going on parallel to Thompson's right at the same time, he was lying to the saying that he wasn't even at the shopping centre to begin with that day. He wasn't even in Liverpool. He was miles away. But on his second day of questioning, the police told John that Robert had admitted that they were both there on the railway that day. And suddenly there was silence. And he said, yes, we were in the Strand, but honestly, mum, we never grabbed a kid. Then there was a complete breakdown and he was wailing and he jumped out of his seat and he hugged the police officers and he hugged his mum and he was screaming and crying. We didn't harm him. We never grabbed a kid, mum. In his interviews with the police, all John ever had to say was that we never did take the boy. We never did hurt the little boy. We never. John's solicitor went home and decided to re-watch the CCTV footage of the day of James's disappearance. He could clearly see that the little boy being walked out of the shopping precinct by two boys, one of whom, which looked like John, was wearing a mustard-coloured coat. And that's when I'd like to retract my statement from earlier, saying it's probably in black and white. So it's clearly... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You're like, oh! Yes. Um, so the next morning, they went back in and asked John what colour his coat was, and he said mustard. So now they knew for sure that the boys had done something, but they needed a confession. And so the questioning continued. Finally, John admitted after two days of questioning what they'd done on that day. And then he made his first admissions. He said, I killed the baby. I'm very sorry. He was also saying that he'd wanted to tell the baby's mum that he was sorry and asking if he could tell her that he's sorry. From then on, he made certain admissions that he was present and inflicted some of the injuries caused on James. Robert's version of events that he told police were that the boys took James from the shopping centre. They walked around and took him onto the railway track. Robert then watched John assault this child, but then Robert went home and that he never took part in any of the assault and he never watched James die. He didn't take part in any of it. All he did was watch. As you can probably guess, John's version of events was really to place most of the blame on Robert. He said that Robert was throwing bricks at James. On top of John's verbal confession, there was also some very strong forensic evidence that proved that the boys did do it. And, for example, the blood that was on John's shoe from earlier, the forensics showed that it was a match. Finally, the police managed to discover exactly what happened that day. The boys took James by the hand and led him out of the shopping centre and walked for almost three miles. James is crying the whole time and the boys are assaulting him. The three of them were seen by over 38 people on this three-mile walk. That's 38 people that could have intervened and saved James's life. And probably a large proportion of those people, no doubt, think of that to this day. Now, people did stop the boys and they wondered what was going on and they asked why James was bloody and why he was crying. But the boys had a story ready each time. Like, oh, he's fallen over. That's why he's got an injuries on him, which we know now is a lie because the injuries that were ones that they inflicted on him. Another story was that he was crying for his mum and that they were taking him home to his mum. 
Now, the boys didn't go straight to the railway line, because that wasn't even part of their original plan to begin with. Their initial plan was to steal a child, go outside the Strand, and just push them in front of a car. However, that didn't work. Also, James wasn't even part of their initial plan to begin with. The boys had actually tried abducting another child earlier that day, but the child's mother caught them before they could take him. As they successfully abducted James, and where their plan was to push him in front of a car didn't work, the boys decided to take him to the canal and they were going to push him in and drown him. But somehow that also didn't work. I don't know how this didn't work, but it just didn't. And so somehow he got dropped on his head by one of the boys. And that is why his head was covered in blood. When people were passing, they reported seeing a bloody little child that was crying. As their first two plans didn't work, they decided to take him up onto the railway line. And once they were there at this railway line, the two boys tortured this little boy. This wasn't just a game. This was horrifically torturing this wee boy and it was completely evil. It's believed that Robert Thompson had more involvement in the torture and the assault of James, although John Venables did have his part and he played his part in it and he was equally as sadistic. I'm not going to go into too much detail at all with this because it is rough. Like, it's all online if you do want to go and do further reading, but just beware. Now, James's official cause of death was due to beating. These boys just beat him so badly and for so long and viciously that the official cause of death was beating. They tortured him for so long and in so many different ways. They weighed him down on the railway track so that he couldn't get up and then they left and let him get hit by a train. James was hit by a train and he was cut in two, although it was believed that he was dead before he was hit by the train due to his injuries. The postmortem showed that he had a lot of split wounds and lacerations, mainly to his head, which were the result of being struck with heavy blows by the bricks and also by an iron bar that was found at the scene. James's body was in such an awful condition when he was found. Now, it was believed that there was a sexual aspect to this crime and to this murder, and the way in which his body was found, it was just very obvious that there was. All of his clothes from the waist down were removed, along with other quite disturbing details of how his body was found. Now, also, to be honest, I would believe it from now what we know about John Venables as an adult, but I will talk about that later. Although I will say that both boys did claim that there was no sexual aspect to this crime whatsoever. Both boys were subsequently charged with abduction, attempted abduction, murder abduction and murder for James Bulger and also attempted abduction for the, the boy earlier that day. The boy's first appearance in court was just 10 days after the murder where the boys were just known as child A and child B. And because they were just 10 years old, their identities were at first protected from the public. Outside the court that day, there was hundreds of people that turned up outside and they caused a riot. They threw things at the van. They shouted out just to express their general disgust and outrage and anger at what has just happened here. The boys trial was set to later that year where they would be sentenced. And again, over 500 people turned up to the court. There were queues outside the court and there were only 44 seats available for the public to listen in. So they'd been queuing up all night to get in. 
The dock and the courtroom were where the boys would have been standing to do the trial actually had to be raised by 18 inches. They had to put a false floor in there because these were two 10-year-old boys and they couldn't see over the railings. Now, an interesting fact is that in the UK, the criminal age of responsibility is 10 years old. Should these boys have been just a few months younger than they were, they would have gotten off completely for this crime. They wouldn't have even been charged. Now, in this trial... That's so scary, isn't it? Yeah, it's the fact of, like, even if they were, say, nine months, uh, nine years and nine months, and they did the exact same thing, their thoughts would have been the exact same. They practically is the same age as a 10-year-old. Completely off. Mad. Yeah. Now, in this trial, the details of the day before the abduction surfaced... John Venables had actually been chosen to look after the school gerbils that week. And so that day on the 12th of February, he was on his way to school to pick up the gerbils. And on, on his way there, he bumped into his best friend, Robert Thompson, in town. Robert managed to persuade John into going shoplifting that day and the two of them went to the Strand. They were shoplifting for a bit, but they got bored. And that's when Robert turned to John and said, let's grab a kid. And so John forgot all about his gerbils. I forgot he was supposed to be going to school. And after a failed attempt at abducting another child, the two of them eventually abducted James Bulger. Like I said, they walked around with James for ages and they were passed by many people. And on one occasion, they were stopped by a woman walking her dog and she asked the same questions. Why is the baby crying? Why has he got blood in his head? And they said that he was lost and they didn't actually know this little baby. And they asked for directions to the nearest police station so that they could take him there. The woman gave directions to the nearest police station and just left and let these two 10-year-old boys take a baby to the police station. Which I can't understand. I know, I know. It's a different time though, isn't it? Yes, Like, exactly. I think the 90s was, like, as much as it's not that long ago, that probably wasn't as frowned upon. Whereas now you'd yeah. be like, absolutely not. Yeah, well, if it was the 70s and 80s, that would probably would have even been worse. So, yeah. Now, it came to light in these trials that Robert seemed to have the leading role in the abduction, the murder and in the torture of James Bulger, although it was John's idea to take him up onto the railway line. John said in his trial that James Bulger seemed to like him more than Robert. He would let John pick him up, let him hold his hand, whereas he wouldn't let Robert do any of that. The trial lasted 17 days and then a verdict was finally made. Both boys were by then 11 years old were found guilty of the murder of James Bulger which made them the UK's youngest ever convicted murderers because they were 10 at the time of the murder. John cried and then when Robert noticed he was crying he did the same as if to act like this is what I should be doing. Now I'm going to say throughout the time the trial though they didn't show much remorse. They were like it wasn't you know it was just crazy now this was huge unlike in the case a few weeks ago in ireland caitlin because in this case the judge made the controversial decision to release the boys names to the Mm. public and the boys school pictures so that the public could identify these two boys that done all of these things to wee james now, this is very rarely done with child criminals, as we all know. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why, obviously, his mum had so much to do with the Anna Kriegel case, because it is, it's just like, actually, 
should the names be released because you and Aji said we'll then go on to talk about them in the future that's it that's their life kind of set mm-hmm. yeah you're completely right now and we can discuss it as well later on now the information was released like I just said but the judge also ruled that no more information about these two men as they grew up and in prison or anything else about them could ever be released when they left prison they would be given new identities now, both boys were sentenced to just eight years in prison for the horrific torture and murder of James Bulger. As you can imagine, this was met by complete outrage from the whole of the UK. And due to this, the boys' trials were actually reviewed and their sentencing was increased from eight years to ten years. Two more years were added on. Now, a national newspaper in the UK called The Sun, of all papers, actually started a petition to try and get the boys' sentences increased further and this petition got over 280,000 signatures and it worked. The government increased the boys' sentences from 10 years to 15 years, which a lot of people still believed was too short. Now, the second increase in the sentences from 10 to 15 years was done by the government and not by criminal lawyers and so it was deemed that it wasn't fair the government didn't actually have the right to do this and so those sentences were brought back down to 10 years. Both boys were put into separate child criminal rehabilitation units which was like half prison half rehabilitation full of children and while both boys were there in separate places it was reported that both of them were experiencing PTSD from the murder. John particularly was suffering pretty bad with post-traumatic stress and he would have nightmares and flashbacks. Robert was also experiencing it, but John's was much more severe. Both of them had really secure accommodation. They were always supervised and doors would be locked before and after they would enter every room. So they would go in and the door would be locked behind them so no one in the unit could attack them. Both boys got a good education. They had nice food. They had TVs in their rooms with video games and movies. It was like holiday home to some. They had more than some children who weren't even in prison. For Robert in particular, this was probably amazing. Like, he didn't grow up like this. This is, he's in paradise practically. Now, both of them were taught how to conceal their past and their real identities, as well as having one-to-one tuition to pass GCSEs and A-levels. As you can imagine, it's a lot of money to keep these boys where they were on average, it costs somewhere in the region of about £3,000 a week. Now, I know we have to remember it's rehabilitation. You know, you've got to get them back out into the, to the real world at some point, but this is crazy. Now, it wasn't just the boys' lives inside the unit that was causing outrage. They were often let out of the unit to go shopping, go to football games, meet up with family. Robert was first led out on his first day out just a year into his sentence. He was let out for the day just to go for a walk around a park and as of then he would go on monthly trips to the swimming pool because it was his favourite hobby and they were also getting things like McDonald's and, and all that before returning back to the unit. In 1999, when both boys were 16 years old, it was decided by the European court that their original trial in 1993 wasn't impartial. Due to this, their sentences were once again reviewed. This review decided that the boys were then going to be released just six months later in June 2001. Both boys were released and they were given new identities, new names, new passports, birth certificates, everything. And they were put into new secret locations that no one knew about. 
They were both prohibited from contacting each other. They weren't allowed to find out each of their new identities. They were prohibited from contacting James Bulger's family. And they weren't allowed to go into like the Merseyside area, contact other people that they used to know. Other than reporting to a parole officer every so often, they were free men. Also, there have been three different people, at least, that have had jail time for sharing pictures and profiles of who they believe is John Venables and Robert Thompson's new identities. So sharing photos of them both is a criminal offence. Nine years after his release in 2010, John Venables actually reoffended, and it was all over the media. It was huge news. Due to this, his actual cause of arrest, like the reason he was arrested, it was kept a secret. It wasn't public information, but as you can imagine, there was a lot of public backlash, as there always is. And once again, the courts went back on their word and they actually did release it in the end. Police called into his flat and John tried to smash up his computer into bits, but the police managed to get the computer off of him. And that is when they found all the child porn on it. The person formerly known as John Venables was charged with possession and dis distribution of indecent images of children and he had downloaded over 57 indecent images of children over a 12-month period and was actually sharing them and downloading them and posting them on a paedophile network. He pled guilty to this and he was sentenced to two years in prison. Two years. During his trial, however, it came out that John had been violating the terms of his release the whole time since 2001, for nine years since he got let out, because he'd been drinking in Liverpool in clubs, he'd been to Everton games, he wasn't to be anywhere in or near the Merseyside area, but he was, and it also came out that he'd been arrested twice before since his release, once for a drunk fight and once for possession of drugs. It was decided once again that his new identity was not going to be released. So this is another new identity and it wasn't going to be released to the public, although it was clear that he was a danger to society, like he was still reoffending. In 2005, after his release, his probation officer reported meeting his girlfriend at the time, who was just 17 years old and he was 23. So it wasn't a huge age gap. It was just six years. But when you're that young, it kind of is. Now, John dated many young teenage girls, um, 17, 18, 19 year olds, while he was in his 20s. People believed that he was just trying to live his adolescence as it was like a delayed adolescence since he was in prison all of this time. As his supervision gradually decreased, he was seeing his probation officer less and less. He began violating the terms of his release once again. He was excessively drinking, taking drugs, downloading child pornography images, as well as visiting Merseyside on two different occasions. John actually revealed his true identity to two different people. And so because of this, and because of his true identity, he was given another new identity. He was kept in prison between 2011 and 2013 for his own safety, because police feared that he would share his new, new identity, which is costing the taxpayers mega bucks. I believe it's like over a quarter of a million pounds. Now, in February of 2018, John Venables pled guilty to possession of indecent images of children for a second time. He admitted to being in possession of 392 Category A, 148 Category B and 630 Category C 
child porn images. Now, category A includes penetration, which he had almost 392 of. B is non-penetrative sexual activity, which he had 148 images of. And C is the kind of indecent child images that's not sexual activity. So anything that doesn't fall under the first two categories, which he had 630 of. John Venables was sentenced to a further three years and four months in prison. Again, still short times. The last I read was an article dated the 20th of September 2023, saying that he's now 41 years old, still in prison, and had a two-day hearing set for the 14th of November, which has passed, and it was set to be heard in private. However, I do not have any further information on how that went. Probably a new identity, no doubt. Now, Robert Thompson, he was successfully rehabilitated and he hasn't offended since that I know of. But that is the story of James Bulger. I feel like it's such a, obviously a well-known one, but once you actually get into it, it's just mental, isn't it? It's crazy how... Would even cross an adult's mind to do, never mind a child's mind. But I'm also, I feel though I am in agreement that their identities should have been released or to a certain extent, I, I don't think that they're, they should have got a new identity, you know. No. They've got to live with what no, they no. did. They did it. Yeah, I, get, I think, I, I think I do get it, like hiding it is so young. But I think obviously Venables went on to re- Offend, and actually, um, I I was what I watched a documentary years ago, so I, I don't quote me on it. But I remember that he had actually ended up telling, like, somebody at the pub, like a friend, just before he was done, uh, was basically saying like he got drunk and was like, oh, I did like bad shit when I was younger, and they were like, oh yeah, like we all did, and he was like, no, like I'm actually Andrew Venables, and they were just like, oh, so I believe he did break that himself. I can't remember exact, but I remember like him breaking it. John Venables. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes, John Venables, yeah, not Andrew Venables. Yeah, he ended up basically telling somebody who he was. And they were like, oh, right, okay. So I'm sure he broke that first. 